Hi, I'm Dave Miranda, General Counsel and Past President of the New York State Bar Association. Welcome to Miranda Warnings. You have the right to remain listening. This is a special edition of Miranda Warnings. Earlier this week, Politico published a draft decision written by Supreme Court Judge Sam Alito, which would overturn the 50-year-old precedent of Roe v. Wade, which found constitutional protection for a woman's right to choose to terminate a pregnancy prior to fetal viability. The leaked decision has sent shockwaves across the country, not only because it involves such a significant and controversial issue, but also because of the unprecedented leak of Supreme Court deliberations prior to a final decision. For Supreme Court watchers, there's a lot to unpack. And we're very fortunate to have on Miranda warnings today, two of our best Supreme Court watchers. We have Professor Vin Bonventry. He's the Justice Robert H. Jackson Distinguished Professor of Law at Albany Law School. He's a former Supreme Court Judicial Fellow, and he's author of NewYorkCourtWatcher.com, providing commentary on, on the Supreme Court and the New York Court of Appeals. Welcome, Professor Bonventry. Always good to be on Miranda Warning. And we're also very honored to have Liz Benjamin. She's the Managing Director at Marathon Strategies, a communications and strategy firm in New York, and a former reporter and former host of the daily political news show, Capital Tonight. Welcome, Liz Benjamin. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, Liz and Vin are both friends of Miranda Warnings. We've had you both on before. Uh, you're, you're both fabulous. This is obviously uh, a, a bombshell. Uh, tell us, uh, how important is this leak uh, of the decision uh, or the draft decision? Why do we care about a draft decision? Well, I think that uh, Vin can probably handle the uh, uh, sort of technicalities from the court standpoint, but from a political standpoint, uh, this really can't be undersold in terms of its importance. And whoever did it certainly had an agenda quite, quite clearly. And there's been a lot of speculation as to why this leak was, what the motivation was. Was it done to strengthen the spine of um, individuals on the court, potentially Kavanaugh, for example, who may have gotten cold feet about promises that were made when the court's uh, more conservative appointees were put there by um, President Trump in particular uh, to overturn Roe. I mean, this has been a long time coming. It was not a surprise, certainly. Uh, I think that the leak was a surprise and uh, the political implications are significant because now the court finds itself a little bit in a, between a rock and a hard place because the uh, various different sides, right, the true believers on both sides, this is an issue that galvanizes the grassroots on both the left and the right. So now you've got people who are expecting the court to do a certain thing. And if they don't, they're going to be in trouble with the right. And if they do, the left is going to get very uh, aggressive and uh, active. Now, there's not a heck of a lot they can do, as we are seeing now with this sort of ideological and, and um, you know, really just sending a message effort by the Senate, led by Chuck Schumer, who is, of course, our senior senator in New York and the majority leader of the Senate, uh, to pass legislation, you know, uh, protecting abortion rights or what have you. I mean, this really is going to come down to the states. There is nothing that, that, that uh, the Congress can do because of the makeup of 
the political body right now. And then subsequently after the midterms, it's going to be uh, even more difficult for the Democrats to get anything done. So from a political standpoint, I think that this is in incredibly important. Uh, and then subsequently, and I'll, I think I'll kick Kevin for this, but uh, the implications for the future of the court and the court's capabilities of um, you know, making decisions and, and being seen as uh, a, a serious entity is, uh, has really taken a blow. I think that people, it was always a politicized body. To anybody who thought it was not a political entity was you know, living under a rock. But the um, veracity of and the gravitas of its proceedings and its decisions, I think, certainly have uh, been called into question. Yeah, then, uh, yeah, a few things. If if we start at the beginning, I mean, this draft was dated in February, so pretty early on after oral arguments. And we said it's authored by Alito, and it's not joined by Roberts, which means that uh, Alito was assigned the opinion by somebody other than Roberts, because if Roberts is in the majority, he's the one that assigns the opinion. So the opinion was apparently signed uh, to Alito by Clarence Thomas. And this draft opinion, and, and it's in February, I mean, so it is just a draft, but it's clearly Alito. I mean, it sounds like Alito. It, you know, smells like Alito. It takes like, I mean, it, you know, it's angry. Well, it's just it also said it well, also but there was initially. I mean, the chief judge has 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 now come out and said this is in fact uh, he's authenticated yes. the draft, right? So there initially there was a question of like, is this real? We yeah, don't no, know. This I is no, this is real. But not only is it real, it, it sounds just like Alito. It sounds like an opinion would, that the chief justice would not want to join, but that Clarence Thomas would want to join. I mean, this opinion is part of the lineage of those who have been very angry at the court. I mean, to be candid, since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, and then through the 1960s, where the court finally took, you know, the rights seriously and, and made them enforceable against the states. And there are many who have never forgiven the court for doing that. And, you know, Roe versus Wade, you know, with abortion, uh, Loving versus Virginia with interracial marriage, certainly the gay rights cases um, subsequently, uh, all the rights of the accused that, that were made applicable to the state and really upset, you know, the law and order, um, you know, group in this country. Uh, this is all part of that lineage. And you, you hear all of that pent up anger in this in this opinion. And what it does is, despite the fact that in this draft opinion, it says, well, this doesn't affect any other right. Well, well, then, you know, that's kind of like in Bush versus Gore, where the court said, well, this isn't precedent for anything else. Well, if you take the reasoning in this case, which some of which is just moronic, I mean, there's nothing you could say about it. It's just moronic. That, you know, the right to uh, abortion, the right to choose, you know, is not in the text of the Constitution. Oh, my word. You know, that's one of the first things I teach my students. You know, when I read to them, you know, what James Madison said in the first Congress, he said, I know there are a lot of you out there that are worried if we put a Bill of Rights 
in the Constitution, some people are going to say, well, this right isn't there, so the people don't have it. The government can do anything. We still get that argument today. And, you know, somebody as smart as Alito, he knows that's nonsense. He knows that's absolutely nonsense, right? So, I mean, he says that, but then he also says, but then there's also rights that, you know, sometimes this court recognizes, but they're part of the tradition of this country. Like what? Like racial segregation? Like treating women as second-class citizens? Like forbidding interracial marriage? Like forbidding contraceptive or any kind of sex other than for the purpose of recreation? I mean, you know, it's just... Appropriation, not recreation. If you use his reasoning, if you use his reasoning, that's the same reasoning that would be used to invalidate and overrule all these other landmarks, which most of us cherish. And there's not, the, the problem is the sort of backing into the political argument or back to the political problem is that there's not a whole heck of a lot that Congress can do, right? So the court ends up being the final word, which is kind of, and, and, and sort of nefariously brilliant or, or, you know, just plain old brilliant, depending on which side of the aisle you, you come down on. But the, the right has been systematically working towards this moment for decades, arguably, has been working on elevating justices at all levels uh, and on taking over legislatures, recognizing the importance of building a very strong bench and also the longevity of the judicial branch and the power of the judicial branch to have the final word and hamstring the legislative and in some cases, executive branches. So certainly this, I mean, it, I sort of, uh, in some cases, you know, Democrats are like, how did this happen? How did this happen? You've been asleep at the switch. So you've been That's sleeping. How That's how right, it happened. Exactly. You yeah. were so worried about, we have to win this, you know, this particular fight or that particular fight. And you failed to see the big picture while the, the right was toiling away and, you know, quietly, packing the courts. And then subsequently, now we see the fruits of that effort. And it's significant in the midterms, if in fact, the Republicans do take the House, looks that way, take the House, potentially take the Senate, there's just no legislative remedy that's going to be possible if in right. fact, some of the future of that, that Vin has laid out and other individuals have laid out after reading that draft um, are concerned about, uh, again, it's going to really fall down to the states, which I would argue is probably exactly what I mean, states' rights is, you know, something that the, the right feels very strongly about. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a there's a lot there. Right. So we're talking about the, the politics of it uh, is part of it. Right. The, the Supreme Court uh, obviously is not immune to politics, but really, uh, I think, had a veneer of being above the political fray. Um, but we can see that this is that this has changed. I mean, for example, Justice Sotomayor stated during oral arguments on this case, uh, she said, will this institution, meaning the Supreme Court, survive, survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? And it seems like this this draft decision, at least if it if it stands, is a mere political uh, power play here because they have the votes. That's the answer. You're, you know, Professor Bonventry, you're talking about the reasoning, but the answer that the Supreme Court is saying, if we have the votes, we're going to do it and throw reasoning and 
you know, 50 plus years of precedent out the window. Right. But, but let's put this in, in context of the history of the United States Supreme Court. This, this is hardly the first time in the court's history. This has been going on since the beginning. I mean, the Constitution does not say what, for example, the great Chief Justice John Marshall said it said. You know, he was a Federalist and he was very supportive of business interests, urban interests. He was a partisan Federalist. And, you know, Jefferson was making the very same complaints about the United States Supreme Court that liberals today are making against this current conservative court. And, you know, of course, we had the court in the early New Deal and, you know, prior to the New Deal, invalidating all acts of, you know, social welfare legislation, minimum wages, maximum hours, protecting children, protecting workers, Social Security. They kept invalidating that, whether it came from the federal government or whether it came out of the states. And then, you know, FDR, you know, changed the court. He changed the court. And the court ultimately, you know, with the help of you know, Brandeis and Cardozo and other greats, you know, started overruling those prior decisions. And then don't forget the ones that we happen to like, you know, the decisions of Brown versus Board of Education and all those decisions in the 60s, those were overruling longstanding precedents, longstanding precedents, which said, no, you know, jury trial is not one of those rights assertable against the states. Privilege against compulsory self-incrimination, not assertable against the states. Search and seizure rights. No, I mean, a whole list of them. And then the court in the 60s decided, oh, with, with different justices, decided, oh, those rights now are fundamental and they are assertable against the states. And then the conservatives back then, they were very upset that the court had changed so much. So the court is always political in the ideological sense. This is just nothing new. I think what is new here is that this current court is so partisan. It's not a matter of ideology. It's not a matter of judicial philosophy. It's partisan. Look at the way they vote. They vote like Republican politicians. That's the way they're voting. And, and just to note, I mean, you know, this is not something that um, is, is you know, not well-known, but the, the appointees or the recent appointees are quite young. And so, you know, yeah. we have uh, individuals because they're serving a lifetime appointment who are going to be around for quite some time, uh, right. you know, given the average longevity of, of an American these days, you know, COVID aside. But I think that that has sparked a whole, and I imagine that once we get past this initial uproar of what can we do from a legislative standpoint? I mean, we're seeing at the state level in New York as well, we're going to be, I don't know, a whole bunch of things probably will happen. Establishing a fund to help women who need to travel from states where I think there's 13 trigger ban states, right, that, that would um, right. automatically go into effect where abortions would be banned if Roe is overturned. Right. Right. Not, I don't understand the legality of that, but I guess we can get into it. But anyway, the, there are some states that even have pre-Roe bans that are still on the books. Yeah. So you are going to have a number of states where already you are seeing women flock to uh, clinics sort of in desperation and fear that they're not going to be able to um, uh, get the services that they need. You might, uh, you've all also already seen one state, I'm going to say it's Louisiana, I think, pass uh, the Louisiana legislature pass 
legislation that would um, deem abortion murder, uh, if I'm not mistaken, happened, you know, just in the last week. So once we get past this, and, you know, maybe New York creates a fund to assist women to come from other states, come here to get the services they need, et cetera, or whatever they do, California is considering enshrining abortion rights in its state constitution. Uh, that may be something that is discussed here as well. Then I think we're going to have another discussion about the court, the, the terms of the court, the number of individuals on the court. I mean, we already had that discussion. We've been having it sort of on and off for a number of years now. I wouldn't be surprised if that gets reunited. Yeah, the, the flip side of what Liz has been pointing out is that the United States Supreme Court cannot outlaw abortion. All it can say is that these state laws that prohibit abortion or restrict abortion, they do or do not offend the federal constitution. So the current court is saying that these prohibitions and restrictions on the right to choose don't offend the federal constitution. But that, that has nothing to do with what the states may be able to do in protecting the right to choose. So if the New York legislature wants to codify the right to choose, if the New York Court of Appeals says, look, in New York, liberty includes a woman's bodily autonomy, including the right to choose, then there's nothing the United States Supreme Court can do about it. And I'm sorry, there's nothing Alito or Clarence Thomas or Gorsuch can do about it, right? I mean, that's one of the good things about federalism, right? I mean, we have choices in the different states to do things even if the United States Supreme Court has a different view, but the Supreme Court can't do anything about it. No, but right? they have established a, 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 a hierarchy, not, notwithstanding. Between who who has? The court, if in fact they go in this direction, a hierarchy of individuals who can and cannot access these kinds of services. Yes. To travel from Texas, for example, right. to New York is not cheap. Even if right. somebody covers yeah. your costs, you got yes. if you have your kids and you're a single mom and you have a job, you got to take time off. What if you're going to lose your job? You can't come. Where are you going to stay? All of that is, you know, something that lower income individuals and um, particularly women of color are going to be disproportionately impacted by this. So you set up a, a situation much like we had where you have like a whisper capability of, you know, who knows where there are people who might sure. be able to provide you with not necessarily a back alley abortion. I don't think we're going to see that. We're going to see illegal purchases of um, pills on the internet, certainly. And then perhaps people get poisoned by something that isn't real, or they think they're getting an abortion and it's not because the abortifacia that they purchase is not, in fact, doesn't, you know, hasn't been through the FDA or whatever it is that happens. I mean, we're going to see a certain uh, uh, degree of fallout, but it is, it does uh, in further, uh, I think, deepen the divide, the socioeconomic and racial divides in this country um, when it comes to access to health care and the systemic racism inherent in the system that we have now. Right. But, but that's, that's a constant phenomenon in this country, whether we're talking about interracial marriage or gay rights or women's rights or just anything, uh, jury trial, uh, no matter what we're talking about, until the United States had actually said that there was a fundamental right and states could violate it. There were states, you know, around the country that protected rights, whether or not the United States Supreme Court had. I mean, same-sex marriage, there were plenty of states who had said, you know, the right to marry extended to same-sex couples, you know, before the United States Supreme Court did. 
So it's always that way that there are certain states that are more progressive, they're more protective of civil rights and civil liberties than others. And unless the United States Supreme Court recognizes a fundamental federal constitutional right protecting those civil rights and civil liberties, then, you know, it, the country is different depending upon what state you're in, which is why some of us like living in New York. I don't want to live in some of these other states. I like living here. But the, the Supreme Court has recognized those rights under the Constitution. Yes. And if you look, I mean, this again, this is a draft decision, but if you look at the reasoning that is in this draft decision, all of those rights that you just mentioned about uh, marriage and contraception yes. and privacy are all potentially vulnerable, could be just as easily overturned um, by- With this reasoning. Yeah, with this reasoning, because those rights are not in the text. And those rights were not part of the tradition of the United States. So that's what I said. I mean, Alito can say all he wants, the majority could say all they want, that this doesn't apply to these other rights. But the reasoning actually is a reasoning that undermines all those other landmarks, right? So yeah, whether they will go that far, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, Kavanaugh would be willing to go that far. I'm sure the Chief Justice would not be willing to go as far as overruling all those other decisions, but, you know, some of them will. Well, well, let's talk about that, right? Because there is some uh, discussion that this early decision was leaked because some of the judges on the right might not be willing to go this far. They initially were uh, had a uh, indication that they wanted to uh, to find that the Mississippi law was uh, was not unconstitutional, but maybe they didn't want to go as far as to overturn Roe v. Wade. You, you already indicated that the Chief Justice Roberts. Um, was was not joining in this decision, at least uh, in February. And there's some thought that perhaps Chief Justice Roberts had a, a middle ground where he could say, you know, the Mississippi regulation of uh, after 15 weeks is, is, uh, is something that is not unconstitutional, but we don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade. And there's some thought that perhaps maybe Kavanaugh or or Barrett or Gorsuch were getting peeled off and we're going to go to the uh, opinion by Roberts that, that didn't overturn Roe and they, they released this to try to lock them in. Well, well, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh has in the past couple of years been joining Chief Justice Roberts in quite a few cases to give the liberals a majority. And it's hard for me to imagine that Kavanaugh would agree with the stridency in Alito's opinion. Uh, not Gorsuch or Barrett. I think Gorsuch or Barrett in their hearts actually agree entirely, you know, like as a religious matter, agree entirely with what Alito is saying. But Kavanaugh has seemed to have been a much more, a much softer conservative than those other two. I don't know. But again, remember, this was a draft opinion in February. Who knows what has happened since then? I've seen draft opinions and I've seen what happens to them after a while. So if the ultimate majority opinion is much different than this one, I'm not going to be surprised. I won't be surprised if it's very similar to this one. 
But I won't be surprised if it's very, very different. These things change. They get circulated. There are comments. Well, you know, this is a little harsh. We saw this. Can you put this in? You know, so I don't think I mean, look, I, you you know, the inner workings of the court better than I do. Certainly. I mean, like I read the nine, but like I wasn't yeah. there. Right. So I mean, the I think uh, the politicking behind the scenes is fierce. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, every, everybody who is even sort of a, a, a casual observer is aware of that. And what is going and, and really, I think this is going to be a question of how uh, aggressive Roberts wants to get in protecting his reputation as the not Trump court, which, you know, or the head of the not Trump court, which he is rapidly in danger of losing significantly. And so so that all sort of all mystique and what's happening behind closed doors is certainly very interesting. And but I will be surprised if what comes out does not at least at the overarching level, overturn Roe and kick it back to the states. Uh, Will will it perhaps soften the language? Maybe take out the stuff about, well, now we've, you know, put the camel's nose under the tent, but we haven't, but we have for gay marriage and, you know, all the other things that uh, are sort of hanging in the balance. That might be softened a little bit or maybe removed entirely. But the overarching kind of thing, I, I just I don't see it. They're not I don't see it reversing at this point. Yeah, I, I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised either way whether they overrule Roe entirely or whether they soften this and they just uphold the Mississippi law, I won't be surprised either way. All I'm saying is this is this was written several months ago. This was written several months ago. It's also it's also interesting, you know, how this got to Politico, because apparently uh, this wasn't sent. um, This wasn't sent digitally because apparently it looks like something that was copied was put on a copy machine. There are some indications that, that, you know, like you had some pages that are dog-eared and uh, it looks like it went through, I don't know, are they Xerox machines anymore or am I dating myself? Whatever they no, are. No, there's some of them. But yeah, they still it's, exist. It's a hard copy that was then copied. So, you know, it could have been any, it could even have been one of the janitors that found one of these things in the trash can. You just don't know. Right. You just don't know. There are, you know, there are good reasons why. A conservative clerk or justice might have wanted to leak this. Some good reasons why a liberal justice or clerk uh, or, or somebody who works, somebody, some member of the staff of the court, you know, said, oh, Lord, do you believe Well, but this you, you actually, you interest. So here's, an, you, you sort of touch on an interesting sidebar of this discussion and this story that's going to play out because now you have this special master individual who is, uh, has an incredible amount of power. Um, which I don't think anybody even retired formal army. Oh, Colonel Curley. Yeah. Who is now going to be investigating this. I mean, if I were said janitor or whoever, I'd be shaking in my shoes. But, you know, and once and once they find that person, what are they going to do? I mean, is it a criminal offense to leak a draft document of of the years ago? um, There was a lawyer who was a clerk. Well, he had been a clerk for Hugo Black and a clerk to Lewis Powell. How do you know? Because I know of this lawyer. He was one of the great lawyers of the last century. My wife actually worked for him when we were in Arizona, Larry Hammond. He clerked for Hugo Black. He then clerked for Lewis Powell at the time of Roe versus Wade. And he actually leaked the decision in Roe versus Wade to Time magazine. Hmm. And uh, he immediately 
acknowledged it. And Justice Powell said, you better go talk to Berger, who was livid. He spoke to Berger and Berger was a sweetheart about it. He said, no, I'll do it again. You know, and that was about it. I and don't it imagine just, that that's not good. That's not going to happen this time around. I mean, it's I, just it too so different circumstances. All right. Because that was a final decision that was about to be released. And this clerk uh, gave gave a, a, a couple hours head start. Right. To type yeah. in. And they promised to hold it. And, you know, they they didn't hold it. They, you right. know. Got to jump on everybody. By but is it illegal? Of- there's no, there's no, what do you, I mean. Well, you, there's you no criminal job. code that anybody can identify that would prohibit. It certainly would seem to be a violation of legal ethics, right? Um, but, you know, I don't know. If I you're said, a janitor, are you held to legal ethics? I mean, wouldn't it depend <laughs> no, on who did it? If it's a janitor, it? no. But, right. he, you know, he might well get, well, he might well get fired. Um but uh, yeah, that individual may well not even be there anymore. I mean, who knows, right? A February, this person might have taken it, washed it through a number of different sources, sent, you know, sent it in a manila envelope to Politico. I mean, we don't we have we really don't know how how it maybe it arrived by courier, maybe it arrived by carrier pigeon. We just have no <laughs> clue how that happened. And and I think at the end of the day, you know, one might argue, well, you know, there's like there's a public um interest in having this story out you could make that argument i'm sure that the court you know would not but uh again i mean the i haven't seen like polling much polling about the supreme court and how the public feels about the supreme court but i think that it's a pretty divisive topic because if you know about the supreme court which you should remember your you know civics classes from 8th grade or whenever it was you realize just how much power this body has, and maybe you feel a little bit not great about that. So yeah, this well, may the, the Supreme know, Court's reputation is pretty much in the dumper right now compared to what it usually is, and and deservedly so. Deservedly so. I mean, the appointees are not particularly good. They're not. I mean, these are not people that would have made anybody's serious top ten list or top twenty list of who ought to be on the United States Supreme Court. I mean, they're just extreme partisans. Well, but they're not the great that legal thinkers. I think. I'm sorry. That, I think that what you also mean, because we we know where you stand politically, Vin. But I think that like no, I'm not I'm not, great I'm, legal minds. I'm not what, just talk. I'm not just talking about the conservative justices, the presidents, whether they were Democrats or whether they were Republicans over the last the last several administrations. They're putting partisans on the court. Obama put partisans on the court, right? George W. put partisans on the court, mm. right? Trump certainly put partisans on the court. It, it's been repeated. Oh, that's what's going on now. It's not a matter of I want somebody, you know, with the judicial flood that actually understands the role of the court. But no, I want somebody that's going to overrule Roe versus Wade, or I want somebody that wants to protect Roe versus Wade. Well, and then that's what that's what you get. So fine. You get somebody that's in favor of Roe or is opposed to Roe, and that's what you get. You're not necessarily getting somebody that really well, understands and the judicial because role. Because of the over, uh, I would argue, the um, uh, outsized focus on abortion rights. Then during the confirmation process, yes. you, you, you have a situation in which the public and arguably the Senate is done a serious disservice 
or does a serious disservice by spending so much time trying to trying to tease out in like 2000 versions of the same question, where do you stand on Roe? And there are so many other various different topics that we might discuss that would be equally important uh, or, or more so. And yet we never get there because we're constant. We're just so fixated on, are you going to overturn Roe or not? Right. What and, about uh, that? Well, I mean, I think that raises an interesting, uh, interesting thought because each one of the five that supposedly are uh, in favor of this decision had, were questioned about Roe specifically. And they said at their confirmation hearings, they said that they Roe was uh, a precedent that uh, deserved respect and that they had no agenda to, uh, to overturn it. Um, e each one of them said that. Uh, and then you see you know, then you see, including Alito, um, and when he was, when Alito was asked about uh, stare decisis, he, he didn't say uh, stare decisis does not compel unending adherence to Roe's abuse of judicial authority in his confirmation hearings, right? I mean, so all of them uh, were asked about this and said that they thought that Roe was president that should be respected. Well, what they said was, it's the law of the land. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it's a truism. I mean, Roe is a precedent. I mean, that doesn't mean I like it. I don't like it. I'm going to vote to uphold it. I'm going to vote to get rid of it. It's a truism. You know, I mean, they, again, they could have asked the liberal uh, justices the same damn things in the uh, 60s, you know, or all these. Uh, decisions which deny women rights, uh, African-American rights, so forth and so on. Are they precedent? Yeah, they're precedent. But, you know, it sure didn't stop the court from overruling, you know, scads of them. Well, you and know, also so. there's a longstanding tradition of getting on the court and then thinking for yourself. Right. I mean, like that there's a longstanding tradition. Yes. So there's no. So there's no. Um, well, I agree with you, Vin, that these, these appointments have been partisan. Um, maybe I'm and I'm not by by you know genetic makeup and optimist but there is some small flicker of hope that an individual will get on and then you know roberts actually roberts got on and actually did some things that people were surprised about and like oh the man is an independent thinker and he feels it's yes. important that the court does not in fact go down uh the rabbit hole of the maga court or the trump court or the conservative court or whatever you have and you know now he's in danger of you know the um you know, the others looks like people, uh, other justices are going to overrule him or inflexing to, to, to try and prevent him from holding firm on at least uh, slightly right of center and not, you know, all the way to the right extreme. And we'll see again what happens there. But certainly there's always this hope springing eternal that once you get on there, you'll actually start thinking for yourself and not be so partisan just because it was a partisan appointment. Yes, but, but Roberts is an exception to the rule on this court. It was pretty clear those who knew Roberts before he was nominated and listening to him at the confirmation proceedings, he's much different than these other appointees have been. He's a bright guy with an open mind, and he's turned out to be a really fine justice. I mean, maybe the liberals don't like him as much um, as a liberal justice, but he's really a fine justice. And what that means is that, you know, he's not necessarily going to be a hard right or a hard left, like most of the others on the court are. 
There is, I will say, I mean, it's not probably germane to this discussion, but a, a fascinating piece because I am more focused on the political side of things than I am on the sort of technical, what does this mean for the court side of things, um, is this sort of position that this has thrust the president into, which is uncomfortable for him because he has never been a big champion of abortion rights. Right. In fact, if you read the reporting, yeah. he came in. Uh, early on and didn't want to take a position on abortion rights at all. And yeah. people were like, okay, that's a losing. We got to pick a side here, right? And so he's, and he's getting some blowback for his comments, um, you know, regarding as a child of God, he has like the responsibility to you know, talk about whatever it is. So it's it's fascinating the um, positions to which this leak has pushed people, some of them very predictable. I mean, Schumer, very predictable coming from New York. That would be an expected sort of a move. Kathy Hochul, same. Um, But Biden, uh, it's an interesting uh, position to be in, uh, to be at the White House in this moment for him, because it's not a comfortable place for him to be. Well, of course. I mean, he's a devout Catholic, right? He goes to church, mass and communion regularly. And I've always been bewildered by how a devout Catholic if they actually believe the teachings of the church, could actually vote to support abortion. If you think it's murder, I just don't understand how you could vote to support it any more than, you know, if you believe in the sanctity of human beings, including African-Americans, you could possibly have voted to uphold slavery. Mm. I mean, I just don't I just don't see that. I think that's a very, very difficult. And I'm sure for President Biden, because he is such a devout Catholic, and I'm sure he believes most of these doctrines of the Catholic Church, it's a very, very yeah, difficult You would have position. to go, I mean, certainly people have been threading that needle for a long time. You could go back and see the well, writing of, of Mario can. Cuomo on that particular topic because he was pretty outspoken about it too. Yeah, and I, and I suspect he actually was uncertain about the issue. I think he probably was, but yeah, he also, he probably was. there's also a political reality. I mean, the, yes. the, um, the base uh, is 51% women. Not every woman in this country, of course, is pro- Right. Uh, abortion rights, but still, uh, and I'm really loath to 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 set this up as pro-life and, and anti-life at, or choice or whatever. I think it's just supportive of abortion rights, not supportive of abortion rights. There's a gray area in the middle that you are supportive of some rights, yeah. but not others. I mean, it's a very uh, nuanced situation that gets painted in a, in a yes. black and white manner that is yep. not, in fact, black and white. Yeah. I mean, there are two very serious interests here and they're in collision and instead of justices on the court and politicians at least most of the justices most politicians they just see one interest and not the other and so you have this incredible uh polarization i mean you have some that see no interest on the part of government in protecting life that's unborn at any particular stage and then you have the others uh, that just don't seem to put any value on a woman's bodily autonomy. So, you know, you just have these polar extremes. I mean, you know, welcome to the current world. Now, now, if this decision stands, you know, it says, well, this should go back to, you know, elected officials, whether it be the state or otherwise. And now, uh, Liz, you were just talking about some, uh, you know, politicians that are speaking out on this. It looks like we're going to see at least some vote on federal uh, law that would uh, protect the right to have 
an abortion that's I don't think you can't no you're going to get to there they don't have the votes for cloture right, right. so you're not even going to get to the actual substance of the thing so nobody's going to have to go on the record because they're I don't well I don't know where Susan Collins is even with that they're not going to have enough votes I just they're not going to have enough votes you need 60 to to bring it to the floor to vote on I the don't think they'll get there it's an entirely symbolic effort, and they know that it's an entirely symbolic effort, and that's all that they can do. So they're doing it, and that's they should do. They feel like they have to do something, right? It's kind of like when there's a, a natural disaster and people feel really um, uh, compelled, and so they give money and they give blood. <laughs> like you know, there's like these are the things you. There are these long lines of people who are lining up because they just feel like they need to do something, and the Democrats feel like they need to do something, and so they're doing something, but. Uh, is that going to have a real impact? No, no. It doesn't have more, uh, even more, something more than a symbolic effort, right? So if there's if there's a vote on this and people have to and people take a position, uh, legislators take a position. Well, they'll gonna, use it in political advertising or in political, you know, um, mailers or in digital ads, or it will become fodder for campaigns, certainly if that's what you mean. Um, but I just. Uh, and that's and that's really the only way. I mean, the only way that you are able to get to a point where Congress can take action in a significant manner to sort of counter the decision that comes out if it comes out in the way that we're expecting it to in one version or another is to have enough votes to do it. Right. But they, they will have to take a vote on cloture as well. Yes, right? but they don't yeah. they don't have the votes for cloture. So they're never going to get to the substance is what I'm saying. Right. right. But I mean, certainly those who oppose cloture, um, they could be criticized. Yes, as they could be criticized. Yeah. But again, yeah. look, look no further than I mean, this is kind of uh, an interesting aside and not necessarily related. But Mitch McConnell's comments about forgiving student debt, I think he called it socialist. So, uh, you know, interesting, right? Because that plays to a very populist uh, crowd because people who are, you know, on both sides of the aisle, regardless of what your political affiliation is, I worked hard to put my kid through college, to pay off my kid's college debt. My kid worked three jobs, blah, blah. And now you're going to say to me, it's the same argument of why should we expand um, college education opportunities in prison? Right. So the argument is there's an argument for it. The argument is that it reduces recidivism. It is uh, part of the um, of the process of rehabilitation. It's, you know, it improves people's lives dramatically. And that has an overall benefit for society. That's too esoteric of an argument. And so therefore you go you go to I have to send I had uh, to pay one hundred thousand dollars to send my kid to college. I should have just let them get incarcerated and they could have gotten a B.A. for free. So, I mean, you're talking about a lot of populism and arguments that, um, you know, really, it's not entire, it's not all religious. There's a class and a, and a, and a, and a, and an ethnicity and a racial overtone to this argument. And, uh, and getting back to the abortion uh, situation and um, that really could uh, rip this country apart. Any further than it's already ripped apart? I mean, it's in pretty bad shape right now in terms of divisions on all these political and cultural issues. So bad that, I mean, we see it in the Supreme Court as bad as we see it in the rest of the country. Um, that's, what's that's what's really unfortunate. You would think that at that particular level, that those individuals should be able to rise above the kind of polarization we see in this country among the voters and among the politicians, but you don't. 
You just don't. I mean, you see the exact same polarization at the court. And, and that's, of course, why, you know, so many of us think this is just an awful court. It's just not good. You know, it's not a good court. And, it, and it's, it, you know, it's the, it's the fault of all of us because we're the ones who voted for these presidents and we're the ones that were insisting that these presidents, you know, put people on the court that happen to agree with us on these cultural and political issues, as opposed to putting somebody on the court who's just really good, you know? You know, the, the best justices, if you look at the best, the ones who are considered the best, you know, I mean, after a couple of generations, I don't mean like, well, Scalia just died and he's one of the greatest or he's one of the worst. I mean, but after a while, historically, if you look at them, who they are, whether it's Holmes or whether it's Cardozo or Frankfurter, they weren't just of one stripe. I mean, uh, they would be on different sides of the issues. Justice Jackson, they'd be on different sides of the issues. I know, but it's still possible there will be an evolution, you know? I mean- Oh, of course. There, It's very possible that people, well, not Alito, clearly, but, you know, he's already sort of grown and, and calcified into the person that he was always going to be, or maybe he always has been. But this, these other folks who are still young um, and have 20, 30 years right. before them uh, may, well, may well evolve, you know, uh, uh, in one way or another for, for to the right or to the left or however. I don't know how they will be evolving. It's possible. They, but but it, nothing is static, right, necessarily. So and you know, also, I mean, this is morbid, but like we just don't know what's going to happen. Like things happen to people. Accidents befall individuals like people get sick. So I don't know what the makeup is of the court is going to be in five years and 10 years. And we just we just don't know. Uh, and so to to get too down, far down the prediction road, I think, is is dangerous. Right. We would see transformation of justices in the past quite quite a bit. Right. I mean, and usually they become more liberal. And, you know. That means they're either wiser or more senile as they get older. But, uh, um, but you know, ever since you know Sandra Day O'Connor and uh, William Kennedy, uh, the presidents have been much more careful in looking at the pedigree of who it is that they're nominating. Make sure these people have track records that are solidly left or solidly right. That's what's going on. You know, I mean, unfortunately, Merrick Garland was neither solidly right or solidly left. And Obama nominated him because Obama probably figured that was the only kind of justice he could get through the Senate. And of course, they wouldn't even allow hearings on that. But this current group, I mean, you know, whether it's Alito or Thomas or Gorsuch uh, or uh, Amy Coney Barrett, you know, they have pedigrees. It's in their DNA. Right. It's in their DNA. Well, uh, Professor Bonventry, uh, we're going to let you have the last word on this. We could go on all day. This has uh, been fascinating. Uh, it's really wonderful to have both of you, uh, Professor Bonventry and, and Liz Benjamin, on Miranda Warnings, giving your uh, thoughts on this uh, very significant and important uh, uh, draft decision, uh, probably the most discussed draft decision. Uh, ever. <laughs> so, uh, thank you both. Uh, we'd love to have you back. Maybe when we have a more definitive decision, we can talk about what this uh, what this means. Which for... we're expecting in June, right? Is that is that what yeah. we're expecting before the court closes? Yeah. 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 
I'll come back anytime you invite Liz, I'll be back. Even if you don't invite me, I'll crash it. Oh, right. that's kind, thanks. <laughs> you two are great. Just wind you up and, and let you go. Uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, thank you for your insights and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hear from you soon. Thank you. All right, thanks be well. Time. This has been Miranda Warnings, a New York State Bar Association podcast. You have the right to subscribe, rate, and review.